Hi, holy friends. That is that is the Nigun from Shomer Yisrael. Shomer Yisrael, we should be the guardians of Am Yisrael um, at a time where um, Jews are increasingly under attack. If you saw the recent ADL numbers of uh, just kind of, uh, you know, for any years they've ever uh, tracked the numbers of anti-Semitic acts that we have, uh, we're at the highest level. We're at the highest level. And so coming off of Hanukkah with our light of faith and our light of hope and of spiritual resiliency that we will continue to shine brightly together. So I hope everyone had a meaningful uh, Hanukkah. And I love that you're here with us leading up to uh, New Year's to bring in uh, bring in the new year with Jewish learning together. And uh, there's nothing more that I would like to do. And there's nothing I'd like to do more with you all. So thank you. And I think that our topic today, Havchatat Dega, reducing worry. Um, as usual, we're not going to approach it. This is not a uh, kind of a mental health learning series, although it's certainly interconnected with that, but it is a kindness series. And so this is about reducing worry in a way that will um, enable a more kind world, of course, partially towards ourselves and partially collectively as well. So this is not an obvious choice of a topic for kindness, but it feels to me in a, in a world and certainly a country with skyrocketing anxiety um, that this has to be a piece of the puzzle of how do we think about this, uh, this pulse of anxiety alongside this channel of chesed, of kindness in the world. And how is part of our kindness kind of responding to this um, overwhelming amount of, uh, of worry that many people carry with them, either because of um, it's intergenerational or because of an incident or because of personality, or uh, because of the moment, as we shall see. So let's start with a poll question here to get our personal juices flowing a little bit of, uh, around reflection. How do you worry? Number one, I don't worry. I just enjoy every moment. Option two, I try not to worry, but occasionally it creeps in. Option three, I worry almost all the time. It's a big part of who I am. Okay. As always, no judgment and everything is uh, anonymous. And so take another second or two there. Let's see our results. Okay, nobody here says, I don't worry. I just enjoy every moment. Okay, uh, half the group says, I try not to worry, but occasionally it creeps in. 
And half the group says, I worry almost all the time. It's a big part of who I am. Okay, totally understandable and makes a ton of sense to me as well. So here we go, friends. As we just identified, we all worry. We all worry. Some of us may just have occasional and relatively minor occurrences of worrying, while others may suffer from severe anxiety attacks. Bracketing these extreme cases, do we need to be concerned with reducing our worrying? How big of a concern is this? And if so, how might each of us on a spiritual level go about doing so? And what does this have to anything to do with kindness? Okay, so to start, we may realize that the more we worry, the less equipped we may be to live joyfully and fulfill the moral goals in our lives. Yes, a little bit of worry can be normal and healthy, but when it inhibits our quality of life and our ability to perform, it becomes, in a sense, a negative force. To serve others, we need to perhaps reduce our worry, or at the very least, need not appear to be so worried, so that we can bring positive, joyful energy in our service rather than anxious energy towards others. As Proverbs teaches, if worry is in a person's heart, it weighs it down. One way to decrease worry as it relates to the materialistic dimensions in our lives is to find contentment with what we have rather than to constantly immerse ourselves in consumerism. The Talmudic rabbis famously taught, one who increases possessions increases worry. Right? If you've ever owned an investment property, or if you ever are daily kind of shifting investments, this may speak to you, it may not. The more you have, the more stress you have as well. So one who increases possessions increases worry, they, uh, they, they taught in Pirkei Avot. A larger home, not to mention a second home, may bring us pleasure, but it also brings potentially a lot more worry. Owning a business rather than working for a business can significantly increase stress. Owning more means more worrying about what we own, perhaps. We may feel that because we live in America or other equally developed and advanced countries in the 21st century, and thus have access to technologies no one could have dreamed of just 20 years ago, we ought to be more healthy people. Sadly, this is hardly the case. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes in his last book before he passed, called Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, some of the most affluent societies in the world are way down the list of happiest populations. Britain at 15th, the United States at 18th. To quote Richard Wilkson and Kate Prickett in The Spirit Level, their book on market uh, economics, it is a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of human material and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendships, driven to consume and with little or no community life. How could this all have happened, he asks. Another area about which we tend to worry is the future for ourselves, for our kids, for the Jewish people, for humanity. The rabbis teach, it is not yours to complete the task, but neither are you relieved of the obligation to begin. This profound wisdom reminds us that we can neither be like the cynic who neither takes initiative nor participates in already existing endeavors, since we cannot solve all the world's problems, nor can we be down on ourselves for not being able to completely solve all the problems we address. We must engage and do what we can, but not worry beyond that, right? I think that that, that, that teaching is about worrying. It's about saying, do what you can and try not to worry about the future beyond what you can do, right? 
The Hebrew term for the trait necessary to cut off that worry is betachon, trust. And the Hebrew word for worry is de'aga, which is comprised of four of the first five letters of the Aleph Bet. Dalit, Aleph, Gimel, and He. Right? That's for da'aga, for worry. The one missing letter is Bet, which can be understood homiletically in this context as representing betachon. Right? In other words, when we worry, what we're lacking is trust. The great Musar teacher, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, who we've quoted a number of times here together, he taught in Mikhtav Me'eliyahu, the true sense of constant source of constant worry is that we have no bitachon of attaining the external things we desire. We, this desire for possession and taking, its realization always depends on others and external circumstances. Bitachon flourishes when we desire internal things, the desire to be, because in that we are not dependent on others. Therefore, one who desires material possessions feels deep within one's heart that the desire is futile and is not up to him or her. This is the root of worry, right? When our sense of security in the world is attached to external longings, external achievements, external attainments, right? We're going to be full of anxiety because we can't control the stock market, right? We can't control um, whether we're going to get those, thing, that those things we want in the external world or not, right? But when our sense of security in the world is attached to internal characteristics, internal states of being, right? A sense of trust that are, um, within our internal uh, uh, welfare, um, we can reduce some of that worry. So how might we root our trust? How do we root that trust? It's an epistemological question. Some of us may trust in God, some of us in scientific experts, while others in their own subjective reasoning or perhaps in human conscience. We can all make choices regarding the foundation of our trust, but that we dare not choose to have no trust at all. To make such a choice leaves one in a sea of worry without anyone or anything to rely on to navigate storms. The noted psychiatrist, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, relates the following. It is difficult to be happy if one is subject to fear and anxiety. There are people who experience morbid expectations. For no apparent reason, they anticipate that something terrible is going to happen. A telephone ring precipitates anxiety. I know because I was one of them. My secretary knew that when I was in session with a client, I was not to be interrupted unless it was an emergency. When the telephone rang in my office during a session and my secretary said, it's your daughter-in-law, I froze. When my daughter-in-law got on, excuse me, got through, she said, mazel tov, and informed me that I had another grandchild. I decided that this had gone far enough. The call was wonderful news, yet I had expected the worst. I had, I had to do something, but what? I came across the verse in Psalms, of evil tidings, he will have no fear. His heart is firm, confident in God. I decided to say this chapter every day, praying for God to strengthen my trust in God. It has worked wonders, and I strongly urge people to pray for trust. We pray for all our other needs. Bitachon is no less a vital need. So interesting. Some people might pray for someone's healing. They might pray for, um, you know, uh, one's children. He's suggesting we also pray to strengthen our ability to trust um, and to not live in a sea of worry. The Talmud teaches further. A person's livelihood is as difficult as the splitting of the sea. 
Indeed, when each of us works as hard as we can with integrity to tirelessly and faithfully support our families and contribute to the welfare of society at large, we are miraculously emulating the redemptive splitting of the sea. When each of us advocates for economic justice to ensure that workers can actually live off their wages, we are in holy covenantal partnership, emulating divine liberation. I recall a few years ago, sitting in the middle of the diverse heartland of Israel between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem with such a complex electoral landscape and feeling the incredibly tense emotional spirit on that monumental election day. Rightfully so, folks in Israel knew how much was at stake with such major decisions. <clears throat> As you recall, I think it's been five elections in four years. And so it doesn't seem rare that I happen to be there on an election day. Um, how much was at stake for their daily lives as citizens, for the Jewish people around the world, for surrounding populations, and for global stability? But there was also not only anxiety, but there was optimism in the air over there. A positive solidarity that within this democracy, which of course is sometimes at risk, um, anything is possible, and that united around a common purpose of building the state, albeit with many vastly conflicting visions among Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews, among um, Haredi and Chiloni, Dati Leumi, among Arabs, among all the voting, among Christians, among all the populations that vote, we are together in the Medina Baderech, the state in the making. I approach such a moment with pride as being an insider here at home, however temporarily, and also with the humility of being an outsider who can't vote and lacks the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. I also approach such a moment with a deep sense of responsibility as one serving in Jewish communal leadership to help protect global Jewry from rapidly growing anti-Semitism and a growing global dissatisfaction with Israeli state policies. And a responsibility to help ensure that our global Jewish leadership is guided not by narrow self-interest, but by our most cherished, timeless, and exalted Jewish values. How can we reject Jewish exceptionalism while simultaneously striving to be morally and ethically exceptional? It is a time for us to cultivate an elevated spiritual consciousness of worry alleviating empathy and solidarity that includes but also transcends our personal ideologies as we seek to embrace multiple interpretations of reality, an expansive phenomenological state that fervently avoids embarking down a path either of fundamentalism or of radical relativism, of zealotry or apathetic cynicism, which can in turn lead to culture comfort. Part of the goal here is to remember how uncharitable and unfair it would be to suggest that everyone on the right is a fascist or racist, or that everyone on the left either doesn't respect Judaism or is naive and or apathetic about security and peace. The integrity of our discourse really matters and is formative. It would be completely myopic to not understand the merits of the concerns and priorities of each unique faction given the complex sundry cultural context. So friends, at such historically formative moments, it is a time for Hishdad Lut, striving and struggling for justice, but also for Bitachon, letting go and trusting a process that is far beyond each of us individually and factionally. It is also a crucial time to remember that as important as authority roles can be, some of the most important work that changes the deepest realities on the ground happens on a grassroots level 
educationally and through advocacy. We are all empowered to participate in this holy enterprise, but in the Holy Land, both in the Holy Land and in the diaspora. Our faith and activism must go beyond the political dimension. We can bring compassion and connectedness where others look to spread division, distrust, and fear of the other. The Hasidic thinker Rabbi Shalom Noach Berzovsky explains that there are two types of trust. He teaches this in his work, Nativot Shalom. The first we learn from Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, how to relinquish control and be patient and wait. The second we learn from Kriyat Yamsu, the splitting of the sea, rising up and acting in situations of uncertainty, right? When to sit still and when to rise up. Sometimes our trust-based challenge is to give up control and cultivate the trust to calmly keep walking on the same righteous path as we spiritually wait for change. At other times, our trust-based challenge is to proactively alter the course and remain confident as we strive to take control of the situation and create change. Each day, we might ask ourselves, in what area of my life do I need to just stay the course, let go of control, and stop wasting so much of my physical and spiritual energy in anxiety, worrying about what I cannot control? We might also ask, in what area of my life do I need to rise up, become more active, take control, and create change? Two very different forms of trust. I hope we have the vision to find this spiritual clarity and then to strengthen our trust. I, I refer here to a threefold trust. One, trusting in the conclusion that the highest good will ultimately prevail. Two, trusting that the ontological foundation of all being, of all existence, is itself good. And three, trusting in the process itself that walking the righteous path is good in itself. As we walk at times passively and at times actively, from darkness to light, from uncertainty to clarity, as each of us leaves our own personal Mitzrayim, our own personal Egypt, our own personal narrow place, each day to cross through a new sea. The uncertainty itself is holy, since it deepens the light of trust in all of us, and thus our sense of the holy interdependence and spiritual interconnection of all. May this deep trust reinvigorate and renew us. Speaking as one um, at times in communal leadership, the above is true not only for our work regarding Israel, as we discussed, but equally true of our work here in America and in North America. We need to do the hard work of building our society, but also have some level of trust of letting go of control. We have to commit, but also embrace the inevitability of our death, the ultimate loss of ego and of letting go. The contemporary philosopher Ryu Shinohara writes, instead, practice detachment, make your choice, and then relax and know that forces greater than you or I comprehend are in motion. You're being taken toward your destination, whether you know it or not. Thus become an observer instead of being a passenger to your ego. Trust that the universe is taking care of everything and that you will also be taken care of. The moral concern here, however, is not just about worrying less so that we can be stable and giving for others. 
It is also about being a positive response to other people's worry. We live in a society plagued by worry. We can help others worry less and feel less isolated. Many worry because they don't have anyone or anything to trust. How can we become people that others can trust, that others can rely on, that enables others to feel less alone in the world because of our very existence and willingness to help? I've had people in my life like that. I, I, I'm sure all of us have. And I want you just to reflect for a moment, whether it's somebody current or someone from your past, that a phone call from them, a text from them, a hug from them gave you a sense that everything was okay, right? <clears throat> I hope we've all had someone like that in our lives um, or still do, even if briefly. And what does it look like for us to play that role for someone else, to be that rock for someone else? Not because we financially back them, maybe we do, not because we, we ease some of their physical burden, maybe we do, but because something about our presence, just our existence in their li life gives them a sense of being okay. Our best teachers and the ones very closely aligned with our values and whose moral boundaries we can trust. Their views are in line enough with our own so that we do not slowly kill off our moral intuition, but they also diverge enough from our own approach and even startle us enough that they are not nearly projections of our own will. To be sure, we can and should also learn from folks who see the world just like us and articulate our position very well, as well as from folks who see the world completely different than us. But a mentor, teacher, or advisor is something else altogether, as they can help us ensure that we are always growing by being challenged by new ways of thinking, not pushed too hard or too far, but rather softly and consistently. <clears throat> We live in an era of simplistic cliches like, just trust your gut. <clears throat> While that cliche may at times be appropriate, as we do indeed need to believe in and trust ourselves, it can also and does lead to a breakdown of dialogue, of mentorship, and of learning. It is therefore equally important, if not more important, to have others we can trust to guide and help us. And for those of us in a position to do so, to be that someone whom others can turn to for trust and encouragement. We can reduce our own anxiety and worrying. At the same time, we must, each of us, in whatever way we are able, be engaged in reducing the worry and anxiety for others. Okay, holy friends, I would love to hear from you on this rich topic of adding kindness into the world through this vehicle of reducing worry. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um, I've been very lucky throughout my many years to have had wonderful mentors and teachers from whom I learned a ton, and I consider you, Shmuley, one of them. In regard to that, right now at the stage of life I'm in, I feel that I need to be a mentor and a confidant of my grandchildren. I look at them as the future. I hope that I can help diminish any of their concerns and problems 
although I'm not sure that hope is 100% founded, but that is my goal. So even though I taught for years and mentored students who I thought would appreciate it, now my time is to mentor my grandchildren. Beautiful, Eileen. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you so much for that. Very insightful and helpful. And and um, and I think that that's when we make a list of what we want to impart to a next generation, we may have things like on our list like financial literacy, Jewish literacy, right? Um, values, right? But one of the things we might think about is how do we impart also um, a sense of trust. How do we impart the ability to trust in a world that feels so broken from trust? How do we model that? How do we live with that? And thinking of grandchildren is such a great example because we have no idea what world they are inheriting. Are they inheriting a, ultimately a beautiful, safe world that has progressed in 50 years from now to heights we can never even imagine? Or are they inheriting a world that will um, have be stuck with the ravages of war and of climate change and the breakdown of democracy and other things. And part of this bitachon is learning to trust without having any clue which direction it's going. We don't trust based on some leap into the absurd of naivete, right? We, we trust even knowing that bad things are possible and likely as well. Yes, Eileen, you want to say something else in there? Um, yeah, how do we show our values is we have to model them. We have to be the best we can be so that our kids and grandkids have examples. And I'm afraid too many people just do not understand that. Great, great. And so um, when we are struck with a, a major illness, as all of us uh, will be, and God willing, um, uh, we will persevere and it's not anytime soon. Um, you know, that will be a test that we model in front of others around how we engage in a healing process. And rather than wait to see if we're up for the challenge, I'm, many people here have already experienced that challenge, of course, but rather see if we're up for that major challenge, we can do an experiment every day. When something bad happens, how do we use that as an opportunity to deepen trust rather than break it down? How do, we, how do we, when something triggers that anxiety, do we take a, a minute to experiment with flipping it from a sea of worry into a sea of deepening trust? Um, easier said than done, but it is through those little experiments, strengthening this muscle so that we can, yes, model it for the next generation. Yes, hi, Aglaia. Um, okay, so I'm going to put something, an article in the chat box, because a lot of um, what we're talking about with elections and stuff like that, and also modeling for the next generation. Um, well, it's a trigger warning about the article that I'm going to put in. Seriously, do not read this unless, you know, you know, you're prepared. But here it is. Okay, so if anyone's like wondering if I personally know, have experience with this particular issue, yes. All right, just the fast way of saying it is yes. Now, um, it's something that we're not allowed to talk about. We're technically not supposed to talk about because we've got this um, ridiculously impossible standard of how do you talk about history objectively, which is not gonna happen. I've already 
you know, I got over that a long time ago. But that's the problem, though, is that if I'm teaching, you know, stuff like this, you know, how am I going to actually explain, you know, trust also say on the one hand, your world does a lot of these like awful, horrible things and no self-respecting teacher ever wants this for you and ever wants to get up, enjoys getting up here and telling you this. And now I'm going to tell you, oh, by the way, be hopeful, be happy, you know, that kind of stuff. I I have my own way of handling it, though. When I was in grad school, though, did I handle that aspect of, well, history is has a lot of horrifying, anxiety-provoking stuff in it? I didn't handle it well. That's the fast way. I did not handle it in healthy ways at all. Now, the way that I've actually figured out how to handle it um, is by giving, you know, my students, like, I show them these pictures. I show them the pictures with, you know, horrifying things and then just say, okay, now we've got to look at it from another perspective. We've got this. Yes, this is the world that you have, though. We've got to find different ways of looking at what do we do now? Do we hate the person who did this? Um, do we hate anyone? Is it going to help anyone to hate anyone? And so I start, you know, kind of that way about, well, you know, going from here, do we actually, you know, still hate the world, you know, all of that other stuff and everything. So, but yeah, I would warn people that don't read this article unless you're prepared because um, have um, in my field, have we had even people get to post-traumatic stress disorder? Yes. Um, has it escalated to um, points? Well, the first thing, a story that you read about is does involve a suicide. So anyway, just- Aglaya, thank you for sharing that. And I saved that article to take a look later. And um, of course, uh, um, Aglaya is a, um, uh, a historian by profession, as we know, PhD. Um, but- um, uh, but all of us as Jews are also asked to be historians. Um, one of the things I love about Judaism is we're asked to be everything, right? Historians and philosophers and activists and and healers and uh, all these different roles. It's it, it, it moves us from um, profession to um, to a way of being in the world. And um, what what Aglaia is touching on here, I think, is relevant to all of us because we all observe Yom Hashoah. We all engage with Tisha B'Av. We engage in these holidays where we're asked not just to remember the past and um, and, re and and listen to stories, but study and immerse in, in history. And how does that studying of history, the dark sides of it, um, affect us? Affect us? Um, and how should it affect us? And how are we molders of that experience? On the one hand, the powerful thing about religious experience is that we're not trying to control it. Part of religious experience is immersing into a spiritual experience beyond control. And so that means letting up ghosts on the control. On the other hand, something called kavanah, which means intentionality, means we want to insert intentionality into the experience. And so when we look at history, um, on these holidays and on a daily basis, and we we study it, we 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 to some degree kind of relive it on a phenomenological level. Like, how do we? What intentionality do we bring to that? In a way that will um, be a commitment to truth, but will also um, seek to not deepen depression and anxiety. We'll seek to be a a productive form of study, a form of study that will bring more light than darkness to the future. Uh, without any assurance that it will. 
so so much more to say about that, but I'm glad I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think like w- one conclusion to this 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 topic of reducing worry could be I'm not going to look at negative stuff in the world. Uh, why would I look at negative stuff? I don't want to worry. We just talked about worry, but actually we have to look at the light and look at the darkness. We have to sit with the traumas and the glories, and yet be very intentional about how that engagement is affecting us and others around us at the same time. And so, Glee, I'm, I'm going to look at that article. Thank you so much. Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi. I guess this is um, what I was thinking was close to some of what you were just saying. To me, it's like, how could you not worry? Um, as, as you know, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and even my maternal grandparents came from the Pale of Settlement um, at the turn of the century before the First World War. And my grandmother bore the scar of being attacked by a Ukrainian Christian who said, um, it would call to a Christ killer and try to kill her with like a a rusty spike. Um, Thank God my grandmother survived, but she, she carried the scar from that. And it just, you know, I think we were living almost in a fool's world. We felt accepted, maybe in the late 60s to maybe sometime in the 80s. You know, Fiddler on the Roof was popular. It was kind of cool to be Jewish. And all of a sudden, the anti-Semitism all over the world. I don't think it's, except excluding Israel, and we've got our own problems there. I don't know that we're safe anywhere. And, and it's hard not to worry. It's really, really hard not to worry because it's just, I don't know. I sometimes wonder is our time coming to the end in the English speaking countries too. I don't know how much longer we have. So um, it's not good to worry like that, but. uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to engage with that. I I appreciate that so much. And, um, and also I feel like how, 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 so I want to get, I want to throw this back to the group. I'm given what Lauren just said, um, assuming that resonates for, you know, for you that, um, that, you know, Jews have never for a prolonged time been safe anywhere, even though there were pockets of security, like the golden age of Spain and, you know, and, 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 you know, Babylonia, um, where we were second class citizens at best, but at least we weren't being killed by pogroms and crusades at certain periods of time, right? But even those all came to an end as well, eventually. Um, and so we'd be naive to be like, oh, here's the one exception. We've now made it to the moment that is the one exception of all history where Jews are just going to be fine going forward, you know? And so how do we take that scary reality and yet um, live with it in a way that is not paralyzing? I don't know if anyone wants to engage with that. By the way, just to, just to lighten the mood for a second, um, you may remember the old Jewish joke where someone sends a telegram and it says, start worrying, details to follow, right? Um, so it's true. We, uh, like like it, is, it is very much a part of our culture. And for some reason it was, um, I don't know if this is kind of empirically true or just, um, or unfair or, or, or fair, but a, a lot of that worrying was attached to women. Right. The Jewish man was stereotypically quiet and kind of distanced, kind of a thinker, but but not so engaged. And the Jewish mother is this um, this ball of worry, this ball of anxiety um, passed down from her mother. Um, you know, the worrying Jewish mother is like a is a is a caricature. And I, I, it'd be worth processing kind of what you know what that's about as well, you know, um, 
and 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 what is this caricature of the of the Jewish father who's kind of aloof and you know unemotional um, as well? Yeah, hi Sarah. Hello. So uh, first thing that comes to me as I hear that is Mad Magazine and what me worry. Um, there, one of the ways that I look at what you've just asked is one, we're not alone. We are, one, we are not alone if we trust in God, the infinite, but also if we trust that there are others out here who are also strangers in a strange land and that together we can create something that is righteous, that moves forward in a positive fashion, that makes a difference. Um, why are things so much worse? Well, the insecurity in this world is so much greater. I will put into the chat a series that The Intercept starts now on insecurity that's hosted by Ray Warras and a few other people. But it's the tremendous amount of insecurity is making people panic, um, is making them angry and scapegoating. And it, yes, this has happened as we can look at the entire Talmud and say forever. Um, there have always been the enemies and we've always wanted to see ourselves as the good, although often the evil. Um, we had, I, I liked particularly the piece that, that you had about enjoying the interiority of our being and trusting in that space and finding our grounding there rather than constantly looking to the outside. We have to look forward and we can always look past. I'm not denying history, but the present moment is the only one that we have. And we have to deal with our own present reality. And I, I also loved the idea that how do we know in our trust whether we're splitting the Red Sea or we're waiting patiently? And the only way we know is by finding that calm space inside ourselves to become truly grounded, or at least that's how I'm seeing it. And I'd really love to hear other people's reflections on how we can tell the difference and which, which direction we put our trust. Love that. I'll just share one response before we open it back up. Um, yeah, so I think Sarah raises an interesting paradox, although I don't think you phrased it like that, um, around like, on the one hand, one of the greatest responses is not being alone, whether one feels the presence of God or one has family or one has community or one is a bridge builder, right? Realizing that you're not alone in the world can help to relieve um, a lot of those um, anxieties. Um, and on the other hand, there's this sense that actually, um, as we say, as we say, you know, trust, trust no man, trust no man, uh, trust no person. Um, because ultimately any security really has to come internally. And so what do I do? Am I kind of hedging my bet? Like, am I, am I trusting in people around me? Um, 
but holding an ideology that people will ultimately fail us. And so there's really nobody who's got my back. Or do I have the ability to trust in people because I do have data that there have been people who have stuck with me in hard times. And which form of trust is social? Which form of trust can I cultivate in community and in relationship? And which form of trust has to be done really in isolation and learning to be comfortable alone? We've talked a lot about that through our COVID learning together. Um, there's a great practice by Rebbe Nachman of Hit Bodedut. If you have never done it, I recommend it. And um, you, you could do it alone in your office or in your apartment or home, but he recommends doing it in a forest where if you can walk to a space where there's really no one at all near you uh, and just and just immerse in deep isolation. Um, and there, and there's, there, there's a ton to the practice, but that, that's really the first step is be, getting really comfortable in spaces of deep isolation and finding our, finding our own value. Um, the, other, the other part I would say, which kind of blends the social and the internal, is finding trust through ancestors. Some of us, this might make sense. Some of this, this may not. Maybe, you, maybe you're someone who still talks to your mother who passed away. Maybe you're someone who feels you have a relationship with that grandfather who's no longer alive. Maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Valeya, maybe someone in the Torah, you feel like when you read their story in the Torah, like you have a relationship to them, right? I think there can be a form of trust that's internal, but also kind of blended with the ancestral um, and um, finding a confidence and a, and a trust and a, and a perseverance by being in relationship with them. And so anyways, that was just the first reaction. And if anyone else wants to engage with what Sarah shared or anyone else shared. Eddie, I see you came on screen. Did you want to jump in? And then I see Aglaia has got a hand up for you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Uh, um, I've had an, an interesting component with worry and uh, understanding that uh, of like worry leads to a fear-based um, lifestyle, I guess. Growing up undocumented, uh, my entire life was based off of worry um every everything was based off of of worry for me like worrying about if uh where was i going to go to school are they going to ask questions worrying about my mom's job worrying about that and i remember one time in an interview i did um somebody asked me like how do you like how do you like step outside um and i think it's what you do with that worry and how you can transform it and turn it into something completely different and it's it's how you can use that worry and use it as a strength uh, and that's what I've done. I, I think I've I've used that worry and that, that fright and transformed it into courage. Um, it gives me courage to do things that are scary sometimes, to do things that um, allow me to to live in a life that's not just about worry. So I think there needs to be a healthy balance of worry because I sometimes think that worry is a good thing. Worry allows us to prep. Worry allows us to be able to manage um, our futures. And um, it needs to be a healthier balance because if not, I think it can consume you and it's something that can easily darken your light. Beautiful, Eddie, thank you for sharing that. Um, something you said reminded me in talking about your childhood of a book that I, I mentioned a few sessions ago, but I wanna make a pitch for again. Any of you who are working with a child or has a child or a, a grandchild or whatever, this book, Anxiety Relief for Kids that I have spent a bunch of time with, um, which I found very helpful. And I'll share just one idea from, from there, which you may agree with, may disagree with, but um, that, that I have found to be important is 
how giving reassurance to a young person with anxiety is sometimes counterproductive. For example, let's say an eight-year-old girl comes over to you and says, I'm so ugly. My friends are all beautiful. And um, I, and uh, I just hate how I look. I mean, what kid doesn't think that, um, you know, from time to time? What, what person doesn't think that? And what, what a compassionate person oftentimes wants to do is say, are you kidding me? You're so beautiful. You are so beautiful, right? And he talks about how counterproductive that is to give that reassurance as opposed to saying, oh, what I, like giving them the self-awareness that that anxiety is, is triggering this once again and being able to name what's happening within them. Or someone sees a dog and they say, oh, I'm terrified, I'm terrified. And say, no, don't worry, you're safe. Don't worry, you're safe, right? Reassuring someone that they are secure or that they're beautiful or they're okay, as opposed to giving them the tools to see what is happening within them and being able to manage that ultimately. Okay, um, I see Miriam as a hand and then Eileen. As you know, I've had a couple of very difficult years and um, I was in a situation where I was just, I lived in constant fear, constant worry, um, absolutely no trust in the world and a constant feeling of scarcity in my life. And once I left that situation and was in a situation where um, I suddenly had incredible amount of support and uh, the fear was able to go away, I was eventually able to switch from that mindset of scarcity to a mindset of abundance of everything that I have, that a lot of it I didn't earn. I mean, it was just given um, for no apparent reason. And it um, then enabled me to, um, to grow enough in that where now I, I'm still, I still have room for those people to give me the support that they want to give and that they can give. But I'm also able to give back support to other people who have now come into the situation I'm in. Um, <clears throat> it gives me a feeling of both significance as a human being and insignificance in that because of my situation, I have so much more than other people who should theoretically, I mean, I should be in the situation of other people of you know, no roof over my head and living in tent city and so on. So every day, the gratitude of what I have is incredible. And it, it managed to seriously change, change my, um, my viewpoint. And um, <clears throat> I think one of the problems that we have also in terms of worry is that now with the internet and communications, we know so much more in real time than we used to know. Mm -hmm. We used to know what was going on in our town, maybe in the towns around us. We would get a newspaper maybe every day or see a half hour of news. 
on mm -hmm. TV. And now we have, you know, all these news stations that tell us every bad thing that's happening everywhere, 24 hours a day. And that's very difficult to live with. I had to, um, I walked away from that and I no longer follow it all the time. I go to the Washington Post once a day, I scan the headlines, and then I only read an article if it's really important. If it looks like it's something that I need to know or that I can do something about. Other than that, that has helped seriously. I'm reducing, you know, reducing the worry is just sort of this feeling of, <clears throat> with um, the abundance that I've received, I sort of have learned to accept that that is probably one way or another going to continue in the future. Yep. And, and yep. so it's, it's, it was really helpful in learning to cut the worry down from constant to manageable. Yeah. Thank so. you, Miriam. That was a lot shared there. Thank you for all of that. Um, really appreciate that. And so many, so many points to highlight, but you know, just one or two to, to, to pull out a little bit. This, this point around um, shifting from scarcity to abundance, that's really worth us thinking about of what we can handle and of what we have and um, how easy it is to focus on the gaps. Um, but indeed, um, it, how much we can reduce this worrying by seeing what actually we do have within us and around us. And then this point around being so aware of how the outside world is affecting us, in particular, the news feed, the Twitter feed. I know people who just keep on the news all day around them, like on the radio or the like. I know people who just every two minutes when they're bored, scroll through a Twitter feed or a Facebook feeder, because it's, now, that might be an okay choice for some, but they have to be really aware of what's kind of the energy coming into them. Um, jealousy and, um, and fear and anxiety and all this coming in and, and um, taking responsibility for our inner life. Our inner experience is 100% our responsibility and not letting anyone else control that. And sometimes we allow the outer world to control that if we just put too much data too much energy from the outside world into us, as opposed to cultivating it ourselves. So I hope we're all careful with what we take in, what we take in. And I appreciate that Aglaia, when she shared an article, shared how it could affect some before looking at it, and how Miriam shared about changing her own kind of intake. Okay, Eileen and then Aglaia. Um, not only when my grand girls, ages seven and nine, asked those or make those profound statements, my response is, why do you feel that way? Why do you think that? And you can reframe their thinking by probing. Having said that, you can do this with anybody. You have a girlfriend who says, oh, I hate myself, I'm fat, okay? Very common women issues is body image. And I think you need to probe, why do they feel that way? And 
you know, this is really getting into therapy. But as a friend, if you can do this and help bring out what the base issue is, then maybe they can readjust their thinking. Great. Thank you, Eileen. And as I shared in the past, um, one of the many tools that I like and I like to promote is talking to our inner voice. Um, that uh, and and in this case, our inner voice of anxiety and befriending them, right? So so too that voice comes in. Oh my goodness, I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm poor. I'm not successful. Like I'm nobody. Say, oh hey friend, I see what you're doing. You're here to protect me. You're here to make sure I'm going to survive in a messy like uh, a messy world. And you're here to make sure that I'm okay. Thank you for doing that. And I'm okay. I'm okay. You can go away now. Like I know I'm not you know, on front of a glamour magazine, but I'm okay with that. Right. And I know I'm not rich. Um, and I'm okay with that. And like, you don't have to be worried about me not, not, um, being on the top of a mountain climbing some race, you know, to be number one on some list. Right. I'm okay with that. So thank you for emerging. And yeah, so thank you. And, and so uh, thank you, Eileen, for sharing some of the tools you're using. Hi, Aglaia. And then Gary, we, we got to hear from Gary after Aglaia. Okay, I'm going to be really fast because, um, you know, like it's my second comment, so I'm going to be fast. All right, so I had, um, when Sarah was asking us about like, well, how do you know when to be patient versus when to stand still? How do you know stand still and when to split the split the seat? That's right. Okay, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll get it right at some point though. But the fast way to that I had for that though is that for me, actually, my splitting of the sea was to learn how to stand still. So actually though, those two are not, they're actually the same if you look at it that way. So are you, is it part of your splitting of the sea to be patient at this time? In my case, I had to learn that lesson the hard way because I was, I have this thing about solving problems and everything. I was given a problem that I couldn't solve. And so finally, the only way to split the sea was to say, I can't solve this. So that helped. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. Eileen, is your hand up? Oh, no. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah, so we, we can have very different relationships to what it means to kind of move versus stay still. Um, and what's kind of interesting about that also is that um, everything is moving around us. Uh, everything and everyone around us is changing all the time. And so we, and we are too. So sometimes we're moving when we don't even know we're moving. We think moving just being an intentional act, but there's parts of us that are in movement even, um, you know, separate from, from the willful movements. And so how do we kind of engage with that? Okay, Gary, we're, we're, we're ready to hear from Gary here. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Now, I don't know if I can uh, add a whole lot there, but, uh, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, I had a personal crisis uh, that involved a lot of things that I had no control over, and I took it to heart. And I had that talk with myself. I said, you know, I can't worry about things I have no control over. Uh, I can't worry about what people think. I can't worry about people's actions. But I can not, I can stop. Uh, I, let me put this, uh, just can't talk to talk. You got to walk to walk. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think it was, uh, I met Lauren that said all the horrible things that are going on and we don't worry about our kids and our grandkids and what, what, and, and my feeling is, and I have an older brother that when I listen to Lauren is like, Norm, where are you? I mean, exactly. They said the same thing. Uh, but I may not be able to change, but I can pick the, the, the things that, sorry, it's my dog. <laughs> I can, I, I can pick the things that I think need to change 
and become active in making those changes. Uh, so uh, I that's kind of how I deal with worrying. I, I'm not a worrier, but I do try to relieve my anxieties uh, about what's going on in the world by taking an active role in the ones that I kind of prioritize. And, uh, and, and that gives me support because I, there's people in that same group of community. I think community, someone had mentioned, is really important when you get together with people, uh, have the same thought process and trying to make the necessary changes, be it just going to shul every day uh, or being active in, in a food drive or whatever your social change you, know, you feel wants to be done. Love that, Gary. And I, that, 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 that's a great segue into our conclusion here today um, around really all of us thinking about a few things that we actually can do. I don't know if you're a New Year's resolution type of person, if you found that to be effective or ineffective for you, <laughs> but thinking um, at this time of year, is al it's always helpful to think you know, at any time of year, <laughs> but thinking about what can I, um, what little changes can I make? you know, in, in, in my life that I need to make right now. And as Eileen posted over there, you can only change yourself. The famous Rabbi Yisrael Salanter teaching, I tried to change the world and I realized I couldn't, so I tried to change my community and I realized I couldn't, so I tried to change my family and I realized I couldn't, so now I just try to change myself. And indeed, anyone who's tried to change a person realize how futile of an effort that can be, as if they're a puppet or something, trying to change a, a, a spouse in a relationship that's not working or trying to change a parent we're trying to change a child, right? Um, but we can change ourselves. We can change ourselves in lots of ways. And um, and in fact, that's one of the greatest forms of kindness to the world is doing the work in ourselves that help us to become uh, more calm and compassionate and um, able to weather a sea of change, a constant sea of change in, an, in, a, in a world of instability and um, learning how to, how, to, how to deepen our sense of being our sense of being in that world. So friends, I give you that bracha and I hope you give it back to me that whatever challenges you're facing today um, and in 2023, that you can continue to build the resiliency and the confidence that you're ready to, to handle them and to weather that storm. Uh, not based on empirical data, but based on the fact that you've done it before. You've done it before and we will continue to do it alone and together. S see you next year. It's a great day. God bless.